You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, the other day I was having a big problem in my classroom. Did you ever see the movie Lincoln? Yeah, I did. I did. I love that. I love that movie. My wife thought Lincoln's too slow of a storyteller. (laughs) Oh, the movie's fantastic. And I wanted to play my freshman one particular scene from it that I could not get from the YouTube. It was one scene talking about war powers and, you know, the need for um, about the Emancipation Proclamation, whether or not he can do that. Regardless, this story isn't about that. Because when I tested my DVD player the night before, my DVD player didn't work. Uh Uh-oh. And it's a new DVD player. And so what do you do? Well, I just borrow one from someone else. I guess that would be my next guess. There was no one around. But I had a screwdriver. So I took it apart. So I'm guessing today we're not talking about DVD parts and maintenance. Where are you going with this, Michael? Oh, you'll find out well actually i don't know but i took it apart because i just wanted to know first of all because the it wasn't ejecting like it wasn't there was actually a dvd in there mm-hmm. that was in there for a very very long time and it wasn't ejecting and all i want to do is figure out why it wasn't it ejecting so i took the, the thing apart and i plugged it in i didn't fix it by any means in fact now it's broken beyond belief <laughs> however i satisfied my urge to figure out what the heck was going on and then i realized that i have another dvd player in the classroom Wow. There's some metaphor for teaching in that, isn't there? When it was just in that box, you know, that black box that the DVD player's in, I had no idea, like, the parts in there. I had no idea how a DVD player worked. And you know what? After taking it apart, I still might not. But I understand it a bit better. And it made me think a lot about teaching mm-hmm. and how sometimes it's like you're in this black box of teaching and you need to, like, go underneath the surface. And you might not understand how it works even afterwards. But you'll have a better idea. Yeah, there's a lot of layers of teaching that are already there when we walk into the classroom from the way we've always seen others teach to the standards that exist to the, to the books and curriculum that we get. We kind of don't know how everything works when we start teaching and we kind of have to start to figure it out. I mean, isn't that a big part of teaching is figuring it out? I, I think so. I th- I'd, I'd like to think so. And I also like the fact that sometimes... Things that worked in the past don't work in the future, which is strange. And like, wait a second, this is a tried and true method. What's going wrong? And then trying to figure out like, well, how do I, how can I learn more about my students? How can I, you know, do this in a different way? And I feel like throughout the year, you're constantly reinventing what you're doing, trying to tailor it to the students who you're trying to figure out Mm -hmm. while getting them this, this content or this learning experience. I don't know. Teaching is kind of exciting. I feel kind of like I'm a mad scientist and this is my laboratory. I think the question is, yeah, how do we learn to be better teachers? And, you know, an answer in a lot of fields of how you improve is research. But I think there's a real tenuous relationship between the K-12 classroom and research, which is often done in higher ed. And so today we brought someone in who can maybe help us think about this. I don't know if she can shed light on your DVD metaphor, but we would like to welcome into the podcast Marilyn Cochran-Smith, welcome. 
Thank you. Very happy to be here. Marilyn, before we jump into learning a little bit about you, what do you think about Michael's DVD metaphor? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked me that because I felt compelled to say something about it. And I really took me a while to get the sense of where you were going. Um, <laughs> I like the metaphor in the sense that you said it's kind of like teaching, or maybe Dan said this afterwards, because teaching is exciting. It has lots of layers. We don't always understand how it works. We want to find ways to get underneath the surface and so on. So I like those aspects. What I don't like about it, and it's funny because I've actually used not that metaphor, but I did use, actually, it maybe it was a DVD that I once used to make the distinction between teaching in the way some people understand it as complicated, which is like a DVD player, right? It has lots of parts. You're not sure how they work together, but they do all work together. And if you get them working right, the DV player operate. That's not the way teaching works, I don't think, because DVD players have parts that work together in a very predictable way. And they're very precise. You can name all the parts. You can lay them all out ahead. And you can say, if this works, this DVD it'll work player. All the time. Yeah, and it'll show us a movie. On the other hand, a lot of people, including me, talk about teaching not as complicated, but as complex. It has a lot of parts, but they don't work together in the same way every time. They work together in different ways, and we can't predict how they're going to work every time. So DVD players, some people would say even something like a jumbo jet, which is a very, very complicated machine, but we can look at all its parts. We can analyze all those parts. And if you know what you're doing, you can make them work together. You probably couldn't because you couldn't even fix your DVD player. <laughs> I, I couldn't very, either. It's a very right. complicated machine. Yeah. So I, I don't happens. think, I mean, I like the story, but I don't think DVD players are a good metaphor for teaching. I like metaphors this may have to be a new way we start the the podcast and bring in guests so michael we throw a metaphor out there and see right. what we can do with it so but <laughs> see why it doesn't work dr cochran smith you've done so much work in the in the field of education could you just tell us about your background in education it's a long long background because i've been in education for more than 40 years 45 i think I started as a classroom teacher. I taught elementary school for six years, third grade, and mostly fifth and sixth. Along the way, I was working on a master's degree and then went along to get a PhD and then became a teacher educator. And I worked with student teachers, with their cooperating teachers in schools, with the university people who supervised them for many, many years and still do to a certain extent now. But over the last 10 or so years, I've worked especially in relation to policy, assessments in teacher education, commentary on policy, and so on. Along the way, I've always had commitments to social justice and equity and diversity kinds of issues. So I've really been in the field a long time. And that's basically the background. I started out teaching in Ohio, 
went to graduate school and then was a faculty member in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. And I've been in Boston at Boston College for 22 years. So I consider myself an East Coast girl. Oh, and I forgot to say I went to high school in New Jersey. So I've got a lot of East Coast uh, creds, I think. That's, that's basically my background, I'd say. Where in Ohio? I went to college at the College of Worcester, which is south of Cleveland, and taught in Brecksville, Broadview Heights, and in Akron, Ohio. I lived in Cleveland for a few years. Uh, I did AmeriCorps in Cleveland. Oh, yeah. So you've heard, at least, of Brecksville, Broadview Heights, which are suburbs. I have. Dr. Cochran Smith, do you want to tell us a little bit about the policy world? Well, the main thing I concentrate on and have for the last 20 years is teacher education. And teacher education for about the last 20 years, or, or even more, even more going back to the 80s, has really come to be defined as a policy problem. In other words, policymakers have come to the conclusion that if they could get the right policies in place, policies like Do teachers have to take a test before they can teach? How many credits should they have in education or even are they allowed to have? Do they have to have student teaching before they teach? Are there multiple entry ways that they can get into the field of teaching? Those are the kinds of policies I'm talking about. So policymakers have come to think if they could just find that right combination of policies, they could solve what's been referred to in the U.S. and in lots of other countries as the teacher quality problem. They could solve that. They could boost teacher quality, and which would also, the assumption goes, boost the economy because education is critical to our economy and teachers are critical to education and teacher education is critical to teachers. So you see the chain of logic that goes along. So there are lots and lots of policies now that have to do with all of those things I was mentioning, plus how should we hold teacher education accountable? So lots and lots of policies about accountability so we can have better teacher education, so we can have better teachers, so we can have a stronger national economy. I'm having flashbacks to our previous episode with David Berliner, where he yeah. kind of challenged the uh, that linear idea that these policies, you know, you get them right and they just line up and, and make the right. changes you want. He also challenged the idea that we're, schools are broke and, and they need to be fixed. David Berliner and others, and myself included, have been challenging those assumptions since the 80s with a nation at risk. However, despite our challenges, uh, that's the set of assumption that's really dominant. Uh, Some people have even used the expression, the new policy paradigm, which says this is how how things are assumed to work in education. Now, maybe all that's up for grabs with a new president and an administration that doesn't seem very interested or committed to public education. Lots and lots of proposed cuts in his proposed budget, many, many cuts for education, including big cuts for teacher education. So we'll see. But that's been the policy paradigm that's dominant, despite all these very smart people like David Berliner and others who have challenged it. That's been what's in place. So we're having you on to discuss teacher research. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is? First, I want to say the work I've done on teacher research has been done with my colleague, Susan Lytle, 
who's now retired. So she's a professor emerita from University of Pennsylvania. So the things I'm going to say about teacher research are based on the work we did together, many Cochrane, Smith and Lytle publications and things. Teacher research is really based on challenges to the assumption that everything we need to know about teaching has been generated by university researchers who are outside of schools and outside of classrooms. As a matter of fact, one of the things that really got Susan and I started in writing about this work was this big book, 1,037 pages long, thin pages like the Bible, that was called The Handbook of Research on Teaching, the third one, published in 1986. And on the book jacket, it said, this volume has virtually everything you need to know about teaching and learning. We were really interested to see that there was not one thing in that 1,037-page book written by a teacher. And our argument was outside researchers don't produce all the knowledge that teachers need to teach, and that, in fact, teachers who are closely engaged in the work on a day-to-day basis and who know teaching from a different angle also need to contribute to the knowledge base. And one of the ways they can do that is by engaging in teacher research. So teacher research is systematic and intentional inquiry by teachers who are classroom teachers about questions that have arisen from their practice. So the teacher is both teacher and researcher. The site for the research is the classroom and the school where the teacher is working. The systematic part means that there is data involved. So there is an intentional gathering of information. It's not just teachers uh, talking together in the hall about what they see. And it's not the same as just teachers being reflective. Of course, we want teachers to be reflective. And I think Almost all good teachers reflect on their work and try to improve. But teacher research is part of being more intentional about that and then generating knowledge that is useful in the classroom where the questions were raised, but also is often useful beyond the classroom. So that's kind of the beginning level definition of teacher research. How have you seen the ways that teachers can actually go about this in ways that doesn't add like a burden of work? Well, sometimes teacher research does add and sometimes it does feel like doing more. But my experience over many, many years is that teachers who engage in teacher research do it because it makes them better teachers. They don't do it because they want to, a friend of mine used to say, fly to Chicago and present at some conference, which might be why university researchers engage in research. Of course, I'm being cynical here. But they do it because it helps them do their work better. It helps them understand what's going on. So can I give an example that might help clarify? Please do. And I'm going to give an example from a student teacher named Jill Maiman. That's her real name, and I have her permission to use her name. Because she began as a student teacher when I was at Penn, so I was her supervisor, geez, I think it's 25 years ago now, and she has continued to be a teacher researcher all these years. So in her student teaching classroom, her teacher, the mentor teacher, was a pretty conservative teacher. She had a low group, first grade readers who were struggling, and all those kids got to do was sort of practice what sound does a bee make? 
what sound does a G make, and sort of work on the little bits of language. They weren't getting on to books and meaning because they were stuck on these, what were considered to be these lower level skills. My student teacher, Jill, asked this question, and this is a kind of standard teacher research question, what would happen if I did this? What would happen if I tried to engage them in more challenging material like responding to and dealing with different versions of the Three Little Pigs story? So she had lots of different versions of the Three Little Pigs that she read to them, and they talked about. One was called The Fourth Little Pig, which is a feminist version because the fourth little pig is a girl. One was a, a story where the wolf is the main character telling the story. There were different versions with different oh, kinds like of illustration. You like that one? That one by A. Wolf. Do you know that one? Yep, yep. Um, I have it in my room. Okay. So she used all these different versions, and then she had the kids talk. So one day she asked, who's your favorite character? This one little boy said his favorite character was the wolf. She thought that was really interesting. She found out who uh, liked the wolf and who didn't. She put them in pairs and had them try to convince each other about why the wolf was the way he was and was he a good character or a bad character in the book. In other words, by engaging them with this more sophisticated opportunity to think, she had them debating. She had them using information from the book about why the wolf was a good guy or a bad guy. She had them comparing and contrasting, all of which are considered higher level thinking skills. So in answer to her question, what happens if I give these low level kids an opportunity to think bigger, what will happen? And what she found by keeping notes about all the materials she used with them, she tape recorded the conversations that she had with them about the different books she collected their written work, which was relatively limited. They drew pictures. They wrote some words under the pictures. So she was able to look at what this low group was able to do and able to make an argument with her cooperating teacher. It, it, not that it changed her life in that classroom, but she was able to say, look, here's what happens when even the low kids who don't necessarily know all the sounds have a chance to really deal with whole text and think bigger. So that's just one example. I always remember my department chair at my high school, who was our guest on episode three of this podcast, Kim Pennington. There's a great example of a problem of practice she took up because in our school, we had been having some problems with subs and teachers having poor communications and experiences with each other. And so she basically just sent out a little survey to subs with a few questions and, and some open-ended questions that said, what do you need to be successful? And she took all those answers, she looked over them and gathered them up into themes and presented it to our faculty. And I remember thinking back, that was probably had a better impact on actual practice than about 90% of the research studies that are done and actually get published because then we took that information and were able to make immediate use of it. I think that's what a lot of teachers research is, is taking up the problems in our classroom and schools and looking for answers. I think that's true. But I think it's broader than a specific problem or implementing a specific set of steps. I agree. And that, it, it, you know, what's the great thing about that example you just gave is the question your principal asked. She didn't ask the question of the teachers or other people in the school, what the heck's wrong with these substitutes? Why are we having these problems? She said, what do you need from us to help you succeed? Which is a really different kind of perspective. It's like 
taking a not deficit perspective on substitute teachers. But so that's an example of a specific problem. But there's also this broader concept. Susan Lytle and I have written about it as inquiry as a stance, which suggests that teachers are good teachers, in my view, often have this broader stance where they're always questioning, they're always critiquing, they're always trying to get at underlying assumptions. And within that broader stance, sometimes they do a specific research problem about a question. It could be like the one you mentioned, uh, what's going on in the culture of our school that's making it a problem for substitutes is part of what I think is underlying the question you were asking. Or it could be like Jill's question about what happens if the low kids actually have an opportunity to engage in high or higher order thinking. So there's this inquiry stance, which is a broad notion. And then within it, there are specific teacher research projects that individuals or groups of teachers or a whole school engage in. And I, if I could make one other comment, I think you're right that often classroom and other educational practitioners are really negative about the research that's coming out of universities or think tanks or whoever else is doing research outside of schools because it often seems irrelevant or sometimes it seems obvious. Yeah, like we didn't know that. We didn't need your study to tell us that kind of thing. Or it seems just not at all understanding the on-the-ground issues of work in schools. So one of the things we found over the years was that one of the obstacles to overcome to get situations where people can engage in practitioner research was the reputation of research itself, because that becomes a big obstacle. Teachers are pretty turned off by research, especially when it's presented to them by outsiders who say, here's what we found and here's what you should do. And they don't necessarily pay attention to the layers and layers that you were talking about a little bit with your DVD metaphor, and what has come before, what people already do, what they already know, what questions they have. And that's just been problematic, I think, for many years. If you don't know the school and the teachers well, then you may just assume all their DVD players work, whereas Michael's is completely broken. (laughs) I still don't know what's wrong with it, but that's neither here nor there. So I have a question about the data that you might use to figure out if your intervention worked or not? First, the the word intervention is interesting. Um, And the question you're asking, did it work? I think Susan and I and a number of other people would say, a better question might be, how did it work? For whom did it work? For whom did it not work? What did working mean? What are the conditions that made it work or not work for certain people and so on? So that's just a little side comment. In terms of data, when we've written about teacher research for all these years, we've always had a really broad idea about data. Um, Teachers as researchers aren't trying to do the same kind of research university researchers do, because if they do, they'll always do it not quite as well. They haven't been trained the way university people have. They generally don't have the skills. And they're not asking the same kinds of questions. The whole idea of teacher research is that people who are on the ground in the classroom ask different kinds of questions based on that insider perspective. So they're not trying to 
ask a what works question in a big way, like can we generalize this method for all third grade reading teachers or for math across middle schools or something. They're asking questions that arise from the work in their classroom. We always talk about collecting the data of practice. So what are the data of practice? They're kids' written work, whether they're first graders or high school juniors. They're kids' numerical work, again, no matter what grade level. With little kids, it can include their artwork, their drawing, their constructions. It includes teachers' notes about what's going on, their observations. Many teachers we know have developed shorthand and longer processes for keeping track of what's going on in the classroom. Some of them keep journals, which become a data source for teacher research. We've had teachers who've kept journals over as long as 20 years. And this can give us a sense of how teaching evolves, what the issues are for teachers that change over time, what's going on in the larger policy and political world that's coming into school, uh, how the population of a school is changing. So, I mean, there are all sorts of data sources that uh, teachers can use. So it seems like whatever your question is around, like that's the type of data that you would, yeah. that you would be looking for. Yeah. I had my teacher research class uh, in, in grad school and we talked a lot about triangulation of data. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what, uh, what that is? I guess Tri- there's yeah. triangle. It's like three, like the triforce. Yeah. Triangulation is a a term that generally comes from qualitative research, but it's come to be used fairly generally in teacher research to mean multiple sources of data that tend to confirm what you think you're seeing. So if you're seeing it with one data source and you're also seeing it with another data source and then a third data source, it could confirm that what you think you're seeing is what you're, what you're seeing. You also have to make sure that you're not just so busy looking for what you want to see that you see things that aren't there. But for example, I know of two or three different instances where groups of teachers in a particular school were interested in trying to find out what is going on here in terms of our students of color and their participation in advanced science or advanced math classes. So one data source is actually the demographic information. Who's in the classes? Who gets uh, counseled into the classes by advisors or even parents uh, that are the, the math and science classes that are most likely to help people get into college? And what does the de- demographic layout looks, look like? That's one data source. And that's pretty objective data source. You know, who's, who's in there, who's not in there. Then if you try to get at why, you start to ask people. So we have interview data. You ask teachers. You ask counselors, especially in middle and high schools. Advisors, who's, who's channeling these students into the courses? What's going on here? You might ask parents. You might ask student them, students themselves. So we've got demographic data. We've got interview data. You might also have... Uh, survey data of those same groups. So teachers sometimes do little surveys or school-wide surveys like your principal did asking the substitute teachers. They ask a relevant group. So uh, data for teacher research generally includes the same kind of same kinds of data that people use in qualitative research. So it includes interviews. It includes observations. It includes um, uh, 
archival or uh, collection of materials, pictures from classrooms, demographic data, etc. And the triangulation simply means it's used to confirm that what you think you're seeing is indeed what you're seeing because it's supported by more than one data source. As long as you are careful to not ignore disconfirming evidence at the same time. Michael's journal indicated that the DVD player was broken. His, stu- oh his students. <laughs> okay, I won't work out the whole the whole metaphor. So this is this has <laughs> been <laughs> both Michael and Dr. Cochran Smith gave me an eye for going back to that metaphor for the. Like, yes, we did. <laughs> um, so this has been really helpful for teachers in schools that are really looking to potentially take up teacher research as a way to improve their practice, improve their schools. What advice, aside from buying and reading your books, what advice would you have for them to get started in this process? Well, two things. One is a community. So in our work and in lots of other people's work, we've talked about inquiry communities. Some people talked about professional learning communities. There are different labels for these, teacher research communities. They're not all the same. They're not synonymous. But any group of teachers coming together to learn about what they're doing and get better at it could be an inquiry community. Not every community that comes together is, but it could be. If teachers were raising questions based on practice, if they were trying to challenge underlying assumptions, if they were pushing each other to be critical, if they were posing questions and collecting data. And in Susan Lytle and my work, we also talk about the fact that practitioner research or teacher research has democratic purposes and social justice ends. And in our exploring teacher research communities across the world, we were at first surprised, but we shouldn't have been, to see how many of the communities that we identified in India, in Australia, in Canada, in places all around the world, had a very specific focus on equity and diversity. So these were some of the kinds of issues that teachers were always concerned about. And coming together in an inquiry community with other people who want to look at some similar things is a really powerful way to do it. The second way to get started is to have examples of other teacher research. And Michael, you mentioned that you had a teacher research course in graduate school or in college. And I have taught these courses, of course, for many, many years. The most powerful thing for me as a teacher to kind of get people to have their heads around this idea, and some of the people in my courses really have never heard of this and they don't know what it's about, is examples from other teachers, the words of other teachers, the the studies that they have engaged in, the kinds of questions they've asked, the ways that they've been reflective and really sometimes pushed by their own data collection and their own data analysis to look at their own assumptions that they didn't know were there and the ways they're participating perhaps in situations that aren't creating the kind of opportunities for everybody that they thought they were creating. So I would say those two things, communities and examples of other people's work. Where are there places that teachers who are interested can find examples of teacher research? It's not as easy as I wish it were. Somebody once coined the term fugitive literature because a lot of the teacher research 
examples is unpublished or it's published in-house in a in a regional or a school district place. But this is a free advertisement, I guess. Susan and I have edited a, edited a book series through Teachers College Press, which is called the Practitioner Inquiry Series. For the last 20 years, it has 50-some books, all of which are either examples of teachers and other practitioners engaged in research, or they are about practitioner research. So our books are in the series, and our books are both about practitioner research and have examples. So that's one place that people can find things. But if people are just looking to get started, that's a really easy place, because all you have to do is Google Teachers College Press, find the series, and when you click on the Practitioner Inquiry series, there will come up all, all of these books. And you, they're on many, many different topics people will find. One, for example, by Gerald Campano is about what happened when he invited the many, many immigrant students in his fifth grade class in, in L.A. to bring their immigrant experiences into the curriculum instead oh, wow. of ha- having that be something they're supposed to leave at the doorstep. So if you're interested in that, there's a whole book about it. Uh, Another one of our books is about a group in Ohio of teacher educators and teachers who work together to look at gay and lesbian issues in their schools and to try to challenge their own assumptions, work together as activists using practitioner research as a tool for activism. So there's a book about that. I mean, and there are 50 books. 50 yeah. Books. No, this is great. And we'll make sure we put some of the links of the, the sources that you're talking about in our great. show notes. Great. Oh, good idea. Yeah. So listen, thank you so much for joining us today. You are welcome. I, it was a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm always excited to do anything that exposes people who haven't had the opportunity to know about uh, teacher research and practitioner research to just get a glimpse of it and then maybe start to be interested. So thank you. Yeah, and we appreciate you coming on. I know personally, I see our podcast as hoping to have the same aims in many ways as teacher research, to bring those conversations together to empower teachers. And we have both higher ed and teachers on this podcast. So Dr. Cochran Smith, where can listeners find your work online? Well, I have a website that's very easy, MarilynCochranSmith.com. And nice. there's no uh, spaces or periods or anything in between. And it has all the basic information. It has access to the books, articles, complete listing, all those good things academics you know, like to have. And it also has information about uh, the projects I'm involved in, in Norway, in New Zealand, in a variety of places. So I think that's the best place to start. Great. We'll definitely link people to it. So thank you again so much for joining us today, and we definitely hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. Do you know what? We should. Yeah, let's do it. I feel like, you know, one of the things that that, uh, Marilyn Cochran Smith talked about was the fact that there is not a place where these things are fugitive resources. And I feel like there's a lot of people out there listening to us who are doing really neat things. And if you are one of those people, if you have some fugitive research, or if you want to do fugitive research and share it, hit us up. We're at Visions of Education. Tweet us. You can talk to us on Facebook. We're totally there. 
Hit us up. We even have emails that I'm sure you can find somewhere. Tweet us your literature review. <laughs> One study at a time. And hey, listen, we'll you know have a conversation. Why not? And if you haven't already, just subscribe to us. <laughs> really, we're everywhere. iTunes, Stitcher, all these other random things. We're there. Just subscribe. Tell your friends. Give us a five-star review, which we will read on the air. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is Divisions of Education Podcast, signing off.